church on this Sunday morning. Glad to have you uh, in the house uh, of God. Last uh, week, I was preaching in the nation of Texas uh, about five different times for uh, one of our partner churches and friends, uh, Pastor Landon Shot at Mercy Culture. Really, God's doing some incredible things really all across the nation. I'm glad to play a small part in a much broader movement of God's spirit. I really believe we're in a season of awakening, a season of revival. It's so important for the church in this season to raise its sails, to catch the wind of God's spirit. It drives us in the direction that we should go, that we would never depart from it. Paul encourages the church, if it begun in the spirit, it ought to continue in the spirit, not continue in the flesh. And so we are making a commitment in our season to continue to rely not on our might nor by our power, but by his spirit alone. When the spirit of God breathes on something, it, it is what causes that thing to pass over from death unto life. And I think God is breathing on this region, and I think God is breathing on the churches of this region, and there has really never been uh, a better time to uh, be alive. While I was in Texas, I got invited uh, by Marcus and Joni Lamb to come preach on Daystar, so I'll be flying back down next month to preach uh, uh, for an hour or so on Daystar. And so if you see me on TV, uh, you'll know that that's how I got there. I didn't invite myself, it just kind of happened, but... Uh, when the Lord opens a door, we ought to be faithful, faithful to walk through it. Uh, today is also Youth Camp Sunday. We're sending about 200 kids to Youth Camp in just a few hours and uh, excited for God to do really an incredible uh, work there. It's so important in a spirit-filled community that we see God doing work cross-generationally. And this is the message that Peter preaches as the Spirit falls and bursts the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. He says, in the last days which we're in, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The first thing he says is this, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And so we want to build a house where sons and daughters, men and women, men servants and maid servants, rich and poor, black and white, people from all past, from all backgrounds of life, have an experience and encounter with the spirit of God in such a way that it transforms their life. What I've found is that you could argue till you're blue in the face, but when somebody has an encounter with God's spirit, that changes everything. In fact, God's spirit is such, it, it is the key to successful evangelism. Friend, if you can argue somebody into the kingdom, you can argue them out of the kingdom. And so for us, we are reliant on the power of God's spirit that infuses our kingdom witness, that, that causes uh, people in such a way to hear the wonderful works of God, each in their own language. And so we, we, just, we just really believe in this hour, it's never been more important for the church to be reliant on the spirit of God. I feel like a lot of churches utilize the spirit of God like you would utilize seasoning to cook a meal. Like it's the add-on if you ever get there. It's like the seasoning that, that you get on to kind of like fake that you're kind of like Holy Ghost filled. It's, it's just what you add on a little bit at the end of each service. But for us, like we're not trying to season the church with the Spirit of God. We're trying to build on the foundation of the Spirit of God. And so we have a focus on pneumatology, the, the, the theology of the Holy Spirit, the theology of the breath of God. When Jesus, by his Spirit, breathes on a church, that is when a church comes into awakening. It's like uh, uh, the wind blowing through uh, 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 a garden, and all, and all of a sudden it begins to carry the pollen of the flowers. You can see it, especially here, I think it's with the cottonwoods, when you're driving through the valley, all of a sudden it's like a snowstorm. 
You know what I'm talking about? And you start sneezing in your car and coughing and allergies and all sorts of things. What's happened? The wind has picked up and it's carrying what has been on the tree all across the valley. That is a prophetic picture of what's happening here in this church. As the spirit of God is breathing on the worship, as he's breathing on the word, as he's breathing on community, it's spreading all across this region. We got folks coming to this church from Seattle, from Tacoma, from Bellingham. We had folks coming from even across the border when the border was still open, if you can remember those days. God is doing something so significant in this region. It is not to our glory, our credit, or our fame. It is his. So we lift high the name of Jesus, and in doing so, watch, he brings all people unto himself. He draws all sorts and all kinds of people unto himself. And so we just declare our complete and utter dependence on God's spirit showing up, showing off, and, 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 and doing what, what, what he does best, displaying his uh, a power. The Spirit of God is not just some mystical force. It's not some new age frequency. It's not just some sort of kind of weird, ethereal kind of image, and we just kind of, we don't really know what to do with it. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. It can be grieved or he can be honored. He can be welcomed and accepted or he can be rejected and ignored. And so we welcome the third person, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as a necessary, essential building block for a successful and healthy church. Listen, if we build something great, but it's void of the Spirit, it doesn't count for eternity. And so we're not looking to be great in the world's eyes, but great in God's eyes. And when God breathes on a church, I'm telling you, there is nothing that can replace God's breath on, on, on a group of people who have committed themselves to the followership of King Jesus. You know, we're, I'm going to share uh, uh, this morning a little bit out of, out of the Gospel of Luke, uh, starting in chapter 22. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is a, a doctor, he's a Gentile. And, and he, he, he uh, writes like, like a, a forensic audit of the life of Christ. He, he writes like a doctor communicates. He, he talks about details that other authors in the gospel narrative miss or they gloss over. And, and Luke writes about them. And he tells a story that we see repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he gives us more detail in this story than, than some of the other gospels give us. And so that's why we'll be in the gospel. Luke, uh, uh, this morning, but in Luke 22, it records some of the closing hours of the life of Christ, just prior to the beginning of Passion Week. And by Passion Week, I mean his betrayal, his mock trial, his beating, his crucifixion, and then three days later, his resurrection. And so this period of the life of Christ, Luke 22, is happening just prior. In fact, in Luke 22 is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, where he breaks bread and he gives it to his disciples and he says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. He gives them wine. He says, this is the new wine of the covenant, it, it, the new covenant, which is in my blood. Drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So that's what's happening in Luke 22. It is the most significant dinner that is ever shared in all of human history. And it's happening in Luke 22. And I want you to see the topic of dinner conversation happening amongst the disciples in Luke 22. Because I promise you, it'll make you feel better about your life today. It just will. If you ever read in scripture somebody else's mistake, just take it as the Lord helping you live, feel a little better about your life. In Luke 22, watch what's happening. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one 
who serves. Let me set the scene for you. The disciples have been with Christ now for three and a half years. And they are at the last supper. The disciples are literally mere hours away from the trail in the garden of Gethsemane. And the topic of conversation in Luke 22 amongst the disciples is who will be considered the greatest. It is almost terrifying levels of stupidity. <laughs> and it's proof positive that God is slow to anger. It's proof positive that he is filled with grace and he is filled with mercy. Because by the way, he's had to hold back his wrath on some of the dumb conversations you've entertained as well. He's had to hold back his wrath on some of the mindsets and thought patterns and cycles that you've gotten stuck in as well. It is still the kindness and goodness of God that leads men into repentance. It's a really good deal. We are on the receiving end of new covenant grace and mercy, which draws us to the throne of grace in our time of need. It's a really good deal. But in Luke 22, Jesus is dealing with the same 12 guys he's been with for three and a half years, mere hours from his betrayal and crucifixion, the darkest moment of his life and their topic of conversation is not how do we honor you how do we carry on the legacy what does the kingdom look like what is the mission at hand but who will be considered the greatest <laughs> it reminds me of something that president Truman was quoted as saying there is there, there is no way to measure the amount of work that can get done if you aren't concerned about who's getting the credit if you're concerned about who's going to get the glory, then friend, you're simply focused on the wrong outcome. I want to share with you a story briefly this morning out of John in, in chapter 3, where John the Baptist is having an interaction, a dialogue, an exchange with his disciples. The Bible says they came to John the Baptist and they said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing more than you and everyone is going to him. To this, John the Baptist replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. For the bride belongs to the bridegroom, but the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And his joy is fulfilled as he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and I am now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. John the Baptist is just beginning to finally catch wind for his itinerant evangelist career. He's been in the wilderness. People think he's weird. He's eating honey and locusts and wearing camel hair. And finally, he's beginning to gain traction. He is baptizing people under repentance. He is preaching the kingdom as a prophetic forerunner prior to Christ. Even the Pharisees have come out to see them, and he calls them a brood of vipers. Finally, John the Baptist is getting traction. And at kind of the penultimate point of his ministry, along walks Jesus. And John the Baptist has a decision to make. And the decision he makes is, behold, the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sin of the world, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Let me baptize him because he's the one that we've been waiting for. 
And later in John 3, John the Baptist's disciples come to him. They try to rile him up. Aren't you concerned? Aren't you insecure? Aren't you feeling a little anxious? Aren't you a little worried that now more people are going to Jesus than going to you? And John reframes the conversation by saying this. I already told you I wasn't the Messiah. I'm not the one. I am simply pointing to the one. And my joy is fulfilled in this singular fact. I have heard his voice. Essentially this. My peace doesn't come from my position. My joy doesn't come from my title. It is found in the fact that I have heard his voice. And if that's the only recognition I ever get, that's enough. Watch. Until the voice of Jesus is enough, you can have choruses of compliments and it will never fill the void in your heart. Until the voice of Jesus is enough, you can have all the likes, shares, comments, affirmation, and validity, and it will never be enough. How do we know this? Because even Jesus ministering to the woman at the well, one chapter after John 3 and John 4, as he's speaking to her and asks her to go call her husband, and she says, I've had f she says, I don't have any, and Jesus says, you're right, you've had five, and the one that you have now, you're not even married to. What Jesus is addressing is the human temptation to try to stuff the void in our heart with only things that man provides while missing out on living water. This is the temptation of all of humanity. Let me stuff myself. Let me, let me fill the void in my heart with things and money and attention and relationships and family systems and work history and resumes. And let, and let me try to fill the void of identity in my life. And John the Baptist says this. No, my joy is fulfilled because I'm a friend of the bridegroom. Hear me. In the kingdom, friend is your highest title. Not apostle, not pastor, not teacher, not prophet. Friend. Why? Because sons you have. And servants you hire, but friends you choose. Have you heard it said before, friends are the family you choose? Friends you choose. Let me give you some verse for this. In John 15, Jesus says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus later on says this, I am the vine and, and, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, you will bear fruit that remains. The context points us to this idea that what Christ is after is a spiritual Christological development that remains. But it's easy to hit traction for a moment or feel like you're going in the right direction of discipleship kind of for a short period of time. But I think history belongs to hidden faithfulness. I really do. I think we're going to reach heaven and the heroes of faith that we thought would be recognized are not always going to be the ones who are recognized. Not because they didn't make heaven, but because history belongs to hidden faithfulness. You're here today, not because a hero of faith on a stage called you out, but because you had a grandma who prayed for you before you ever got up. You're here today because you had a faithful mom and dad. You had a faithful youth pastor or a youth leader, somebody who the world will never know their name, but they faithfully stewarded you in the direction that you should go that you would never depart from it. Friend, history belongs to hidden faithfulness. And I think in our world today, we so value exposure that we have forgot the secret of being hidden in Christ. See, when you're hidden in Christ, when your enemies come looking for you, they find him. When you're hidden in Christ, you can actually declare, I am the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
When you're hidden in Christ, what is on him in the sense of authority becomes on you. When you're hidden in Christ, every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father above, the Father of lights who delights in his children, becomes part of your functional inheritance when you're hidden in Christ. But see, we live in a world that values exposure and fame and platform, but we serve a Jesus who for 30 years was hidden so he could have three and a half years of successful public ministry. See, in our world, it's the reverse. I want 300 years of fame and privilege. I want about three and a half minutes of training. Just give me my platform. No, one of the most dangerous things in your life can be a platform that's prepared for you before your character is ready to stand on it. That's why scripture says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord and he, what? He will promote you in due time. So if you're waiting for promotion, just keep on waiting because when God promotes, it's permanent. When man promotes, it's temporary. Now watch, we're people whose lives have been hidden in Christ. My joy doesn't come from being seen or being noticed or being praised or being appreciated. My joy comes from the fact that I've heard his voice and regardless of what the world takes, they can't take that. Where's the generation of Christians that says, I don't need to be noticed by the culture as long as my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Friend, I don't need to be followed by the masses when we're content to being followers of Christ. Friend, Jesus didn't come to build your platform, but instead to call you to pick up your cross. And if your joy comes from anything less than the followership of King Jesus, you are simply setting yourself up for massive disappointment. Our joy has to be rooted in a higher identity. No, it's a higher calling. It's a higher throne. That's why scripture says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. Right? Because you ought to think like God thinks about the circumstances of your life. Because if you don't, you'll become successful in the world's eyes while becoming bankrupt in God's. The ethic of the kingdom is upside down from the way our world operates. In order to be rich, you got to be poor. In order to lead, you have to serve. If you want to be first, you got to be last. And if you want to save your life, you must first lose your life for his sake in order to find it. For unless the seed goes into the ground and first dies, it produces no good thing. The ethic of the kingdom is upside down from our cultural value system. And I think so many Christians get caught up in the rat race of life, trying to get validity and affirmation from people who don't share their values. And Fred, can I just communicate to you this morning, what you are living for is well done, good and faithful servant. What you are living for is a God who invites you into friendship like he spoke to Moses as a man talks to his friend. What you are living for is the validity of a father who says, this is my son or my daughter in who I am well pleased before they ever produce anything for me, the pleasure of the father others upon my life. That's what we're living for. And when it becomes twisted and upside down, we begin to seek out approval from the world and it ends up being short-lived, never able to, to really deal with the identity gap in our heart. Friend, influence, hear me, influence is a poor substitute for authority. I think maybe what we have seen in the church over the last year and a half is folks who have been scared to death to say anything lest the altar of influence that they bow at be compromised. I get it. It's hard to disciple empty chairs. 
I pray that God would grant us influence. But what's more important than influence with the world is an authority that comes from being hidden in Christ. And when we make influence the ultimate altar that we bow at, we have traded the sacred pursuit of what is holy for a multi-level marketing spiritual scheme that we call church. We are in the pursuit of the holy. We are going after King Jesus. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our King into the increase of his government, rule, reign, and peace, friend. There is no end. Jesus doesn't need help in the PR department. He's just asking you to be faithful. And I think he oftentimes adds layers and levels of influence to our life. And I hope we become one of the most influential voices in the Northwest because God knows our culture needs it. But what I am pursuing first is his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that all these other things will be added unto me. And so as we think about our value system, if influence is the ultimate altar that you bow at, you live chained and under bondage to the opinion and fear of man. I better not say that, man. I might tick somebody off. I better not talk about sin. We might have a donor leave. I better not stand up to government lest somebody get offended. I better not be a voice of truth or a prophetic witness in our culture lest somebody with a different political opinion say something nasty about me online. I better just play it cool and, and keep quiet and, and never rock the boat just so that I can build my influence. I just think there's a lot of people who are going to reach heaven one day and realize that they became successful at stuff that doesn't matter. We are building for a different kingdom because we have a different allegiance, because we have a different relationship. And if the world is behind me, as long as the cross is before me, I'm running after the direction of Jesus. Friend, I'm fine with you having fame, but I'm concerned when fame has you. I'm fine when you have an influence, but I'm concerned when influence has you. I'm fine with you having resources, but I'm concerned when resources have you. If you build your whole life and only God gets the credit, is it still worth it to follow him? I would venture to say it is. I would venture to say it is. See, we are signposts that are pointing people to Jesus. We are signposts that are saying he must increase and that I must decrease. We are people who are constantly reminding ourselves we are not building to our fame, to our credit, to our brand, or to our identity. We are building a gospel community that exists to bring people into an encounter with his presence. Jesus is the guest of honor, not me. Jesus is the focus of the church. He is what things are built upon. He is the foundation, the rock that the church advances upon. And I think sometimes, you know, we become so addicted to the approval of Egypt or to the influence of Babylon that we no longer can be like the three Hebrew boys who stand up and say, we will not bow when your music plays. No, you can, you can turn up the furnace seven times hot. You can do whatever you want. No, we, we ain't going to bow. That's not how this thing works. I know you think that this is how this thing works. 
I know you think that just through the spirit of intimidation, you can get pastors to back down. But when the enemy come in like a flood, God raises up a standard. Now, I, I know you've had success with other guys who got a spirit of timidity, but not here, not now, not me, not us. <laughs> I was preaching in Texas, uh, 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 and, and I got there on Wednesday, and, and my first service was Wednesday night, and as I'm walking into service, I get a phone call, and, and, and normally I don't answer calls you know, right as I'm going into church, but I just felt like I should, and it turned out to be the lead political reporter from the Everett Herald, and he said, hey, I wanted to get your feedback on uh, the governor reopening the state and how that's going to impact the way that you do church. And I said, oh, we've been doing church. I said, we've been doing church for about the last year, year and a half. And uh, he said, well, aren't you concerned that they're going to try to find you? I said, well, they tried. Well, aren't you concerned that they're going to try to intimidate you and write letters and write you up and ban you and discredit you and disqualify you and deplatform you? And they tried. But here's the reality. The church has survived over 2,000 years of every form of intimidation, harassment, interference, persecution, and the church is stronger today because of it. And just this week, just this week, I came across an article that mentioned the church and our interactions with the attorney general. And the attorney general's office in Washington state has actually released a statement about this church saying that they have no concrete proof that this church being open has led to an increase in COVID cases. So at this time, they're not seeking any further prosecution. Well, what if somebody in the AG's office doesn't like you or doesn't like me? Oh, we, that ship sailed. It'd been gone for a long time. So at some point, somebody ought to just make a commitment. I'm not going to live my life under the bondage of the fear of other people's opinions or approvals about what God has asked us to do. But sometimes we worship at the wrong altar and then wonder why we sense this bondage every time we want to step out. Here's the goal. Announce that the kingdom of God is here. Point people to Jesus. Faithfully build the church. Disciple people until God calls us home. Don't strive to be famous, but instead to be useful. And at the end of our lives, have the inner strength to declare, he must become greater and I must become less. Let me give you some wrong motivations to serve. Let me give you some wrong motivations this morning to be involved in the church, to build your resume, to be seen by others, to appear more spiritual, to seek compliments, affirmation, or identity because you're bored, because you feel obligated or manipulated. Let me give you the right motivation. You've been captured by the beauty of Jesus, and the net result of you being captured is this statement, all serve anywhere, because I'm not trying to build a platform. I'm trying to build an altar. Now watch, watch what happens. Jesus says this in verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And now I confer upon you a kingdom just as my father conferred upon me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of of Israel. I love how Jesus responds to this monumental moment of just sheer stupidity in Luke 22. Out of all of the things that are happening in the life of Jesus, the primary topic of conversation amongst his friends is who's going to be the greatest. 
It's absolutely mind-blowing how much grace and mercy Jesus offers us on a daily basis. How many times has God been doing something significant in your life, and the only question that you can think to ask is, how is this going to make me look? And Jesus responds, as only Jesus could, and says, you are my friends. Watch, the one who have stood by me in trials. Hey, let me just encourage you as you build relationships in this community, get you some friends who will stand by you in trials because they aren't real friends until they've stood by you when things aren't easy. You don't need more friends. You need the right friends. And I think many people are only in relationship out of the transactional value that they receive from the other person. But what happens when I offer you nothing, will you still stand with me? And Jesus is speaking to guys who offer him in this context just about absolutely nothing. And he says, you are my friends, watch, because you have stood with me in trials. And I love this. He says, I confer upon you a kingdom. That means this, there's a kingdom in you for the purpose of relationship. There's a kingdom around you for the purpose of your public witness. There's a kingdom above you for the purpose of power. And there is a kingdom upon you for the purpose of authority. Now watch in verse 31 because the conversation takes a draconian twist. They're just enjoying a meal. The disciples don't even understand the significance of what's happening. This is how great God is. Not only does he give you a peace that passes your understanding, he doesn't require your understanding to do something significant in your midst. If we had to understand everything that we've been invited to participate in, we wouldn't participate in anything supernatural because it confounds the mind. Some people want a Jesus they can explain. Friend, you signed up for the wrong religion. This isn't humanism. This isn't secularism. No, that's the default religion of the West, but that's not what we have here. This is a supernatural faith built off God who sent his one and only son in the fullness of time to pay a debt to buy us back. And the world tried to kill him, but they couldn't because three days later, the father raised him up and he ascended into heaven and soon he is returning. But Jesus here in this context all of a sudden shifts the narrative of the conversation. He's talking to the 12 that are at the table. And all of a sudden he laser focuses on Simon Peter and the entire conversation shifts. Watch what happens. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, watch, strengthen your brothers. Maybe the six most powerful words Jesus ever speaks to another person in his earthly ministry is the six that come from Luke 22 and in verse 32. But I have prayed for you. That's the type of God you serve. You're on He's the great intercessor of heaven. That's why prayer is a participatory act. I'm not just praying to God. Watch, I am praying with God.
And that's why it's so important you pray in the Spirit, because as you do, Paul says in Romans, you pray the perfect will of the Father. And so as I activate my spiritual and heavenly language, I am joining with the great intercessor of heaven to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And here's what I love. Jesus addressing Simon by name. Not I've prayed for the world, not I've prayed for the nation, not I've prayed for the community, but Simon, I've prayed for you. Because the enemy's desire to sift you is wheat. But I'm praying that your faith would not fail. Some of you are familiar with the story. Peter, in his typical bravado fashion, he said, Oh, I never do that. Not me. Maybe somebody else. Not me. And the Lord says to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I know Israel isn't open for travel right now, but I've had the fortunate privilege of being there twice. And Israel today is still very much an agricultural community. They've got acres and acres and acres of farmland. You'll be driving down the street and people are walking camels and goats and sheep and cows and all sorts of farm animals. It's still today an agricultural community. But how much more back then? And Jesus tells Peter this, maybe the most common sound in our culture, the rooster crowing, watch, will be the prophetic witness that you've denied me three times. And Peter's following Jesus at a distance because he thinks it's safe. And all of a sudden, there's a little servant girl who says, aren't you one who was a follower of Jesus? He said, oh, no, not me. And then somebody else in the crowd says, no, 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 I think I've seen you with him. Aren't you Peter the fisherman? You're a follower of Jesus. He said, no, no, not me. And finally, a third time, somebody asks a question and Peter denies. And of course, you know what happens. The Bible says the rooster crows. And Peter leaves immediately weeping with bitter tears. And for the rest of his life, Peter would wake up every morning and hear the crow of a rooster. Watch. As I was reading Luke 22, I felt like the Holy Spirit said this. Only you get to decide what the rooster's crow will remind you of. Because in Luke 22, it reminded Peter of his failings. But the story doesn't stop in Luke 22. Because Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. And that after he was coming back, he would strengthen his brothers. So even in the midst of betrayal, Jesus is speaking to his potential and his destiny and his turnaround. See, Jesus factored in all of your mistakes and still declared his vision and his virtue over your life. He said, I knew you'd be faithless when I was faithful. I knew you'd leave me and run back. I knew you would divorce me and and, and go out and prostitute yourself to the world. I know that you wouldn't honor me like I should, but every time my grace has brought you back. And friend, this morning you get to decide what is the rooster going to remind you of? Because some of you here today have lived in bondage and shame, addicted to the mistakes of your past, and you can't go anywhere without being reminded of that rooster's crow. And today you get the opportunity to rehang the images of your mental gallery. 
Today you get the opportunity to renew the attitude of your mind. Today you get the opportunity to be transformed by the renewal of your thought life. Today you get the opportunity to say, next time I hear the rooster crow, it's not about my betrayal, it's about my coming back. Friend, that is the testimony of an overcomer. It's our inheritance that we have in Christ. See, some of you have made mistakes in marriage. So every time you hear somebody talking about sexual purity, the Lord, the enemy tries to put guilt and shame on your life. Some of you have made mistakes as it pertains to addiction and substances. So every time somebody talks about sobriety, you feel embarrassed. Some of you had mistakes in your life. Maybe they were recent or maybe they were more long-term. And friend, today is the day where you not only get the freedom to walk out of the graves, but also unwrap the grave clothes that have identified you as what you used to do. There's going to be roosters that crow for the rest of your life. You're going to hear them every morning. You're going to wake up and interact with people from all different places of life. And they will always have the opportunity to either trigger shame or to remind you of freedom and grace and mercy. Oh, Satan's desire to shift you is wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Let me end here. There's two of the followers of Christ that have epic collapses. But the way that their stories end are so extravagantly different. The first is Peter, and the second is Judas. Both of them deny Christ. Both of them betray Christ. Both of them go back on their word. Both of them do a disservice to the gospel, but one is restored while the other jumps to his own death. Friend, that's the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation leads to shame, but conviction leads to transformation. Condemnation leads to endless introspection, but conviction leads to exaltation of King Jesus. Condemnation causes you to only look back on your last mistake, while conviction is a Holy Spirit empowering to change the direction of your mind because your life moves in the direction of your strongest thought. And that's what we're after in this place. And that's what we're after in this community because the gospel of the kingdom is not shame on you, it's shame off you. And today, listen, hear me, you have permission to break agreement with shame from past mistakes. That's good news. You came in heavy, but you're gonna leave light. You came in burdened, but you're gonna leave free. You came in wrapped up in all sorts of shame, but you're gonna leave with joy in the Holy Ghost. Why? Because you're hearing the Father's voice. It's time to break agreement with your past so that God could empower your present. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and there is liberty for those who are in captivity. Come on, is there anybody here today who would say, Pastor, it's my day to come out of the tombs. It's my day to break agreement with shame. It's my day to proclaim a new identity. I'm not what I've done. I'm what Jesus has done on my behalf. Come on, let's stand as we close this morning. Come on, let me pray for you. Why don't you just raise your hands all across this place. Father, today we come into agreement with what you have declared to be true about our lives. We say, let God be true and let every man be a liar. We say, let the word of God abound.
richly indwell in our hearts. We say, Jesus, today, by your Spirit, fill us with that new identity. Come on, we shake off old mindsets. We shake off bondages of shame and addiction. We break agreement with past identities and designations. And we declare, I am a new creation who is in Christ Jesus. We say, God, by your Spirit, seal the work that was begun today. And we'll give you all the praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Come on, would you just give a great shout to the Lord this morning? Come on, friend, if you need prayer before you leave today, why don't you make your way to the altar? We'd love to partner with you in faith to see God do a miracle in your life. If not, God bless. Man, thanks so much for coming to church. We're gonna see a lot of you next week, 9, 10.30 and noon. Invite a friend. Let's build the house of God together. God bless.